Welcome back, my friends, to the D-Rate the Hate podcast. I am your host, Wilk of Wilksworld.com, and I am so incredibly grateful that you are taking the time to join me for another powerful DTH episode. Friends, at the D-Rate the Hate podcast, it's all about bettering the world one attitude at a time. See, we did not create the hate, but with your help, we can derate the hate. That all starts with gratitude and personal accountability. We cannot control everything that happens to us in life, but we can control how we react to it. How we act, how we react, no matter what happens to us, how we react to it makes the difference. Friends, there is only one good thing about a bad attitude, and that is that we have the ability as individuals to change it. Here on the DTH Podcast, we strive to bring you great guests and provide tools to do just that. Please be sure to share it with your friends. Subscribe if you haven't done so. Ratings and feedback are always greatly appreciated. And with that, let's get to this week's episode. Friends, it is hard to truly get your mind around the number of different ways this COVID-19 pandemic has affected so many lives. So many ways it, it's, it's affected all of us in, in some way. Some of us less than others. Some of us hardly at all but some of us to the deepest core of our being. To say that there is one size fits all anything about this pandemic, whether it be people's reaction to the response to the pandemic, people's belief in the pandemic, people's ideas about what could have been different or done differently with the pandemic. There is no one size fits all. There is no two sides to this story. There are so many different nuances to every single thing about this. Friends, I have had the opportunity to have conversations with some of the most high-profile people on the planet when it comes to how how this pandemic has been dealt with. And I've also had conversations with just countless everyday Americans just out there uh, doing their jobs. You know, blue-collar Americans, white-collar Americans, frontline workers, and those considered essential, as if every job isn't essential when you're trying to put food on your family's table. Friends, like I said, there are so many different ways to look at this thing, and this thing will be Monday morning quartered back until the cows come home. But we have to keep on having the conversations. And my conversation this week is with a new friend, someone who I don't necessarily agree with when it comes to everything about the response to the pandemic, but somebody who poured his heart and soul into being a frontline physician during this COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Ravi Iyer is the founding physician and president of the Iyer Clinic LMG in Fairfax and Loudoun County, Virginia, and serves as the director of the clinical research for Loudoun Medical Group. A physician scientist, inventor, entrepreneur with research publications in mechanisms of gene controls and several patents, On human and veterinary medicines and devices, Dr. Iyer serves as the CEO of Active Power Inc., a nutrition and wellness company he founded. I've invited Dr. Iyer to the DTH podcast today to talk about his book, The Reaper's Dance, which is a story of the complex and compelling tapestry of human hubris and humility, courage and cowardice, with an enduring cautionary message for all humankind. With that, my friends, this is another DTH conversation you do not want to miss. Be sure to share it with your friends. And with that, here we go. Dr. Ravi Iyer, thank you for joining me on the D-Rate the Hate podcast, my friend. It's good to see you, and I've been looking forward to it. Thank you. I'm looking forward to talking with you, too. This is a a pleasure to be on your show. Well, thank you so much, Ravi. So one of the things that, that I have done a lot of work in lately is my work in the uh, with with the organization braver angels many people know i've been engaged in a truth and trust project with with my now friend dr francis collins uh by the time this episode comes out uh ravi i i will have have put out an episode with another one of my friends dr jay bhattacharya and when i saw that that you have done a lot of work in not only the depolarization space, I know you've talked about the us versus them mentality and how the uh, 
how the COVID pandemic uh, affected communities and, and affected uh, people around you. Um, and then you've written a book. So what I'd like to do today, uh, Ravi, is is talk a little bit about this book that you've written with regard to the the pandemic. And I know it's a little bit different than than most people might expect. So so first, just for the DTH listeners, just introduce yourself real quick and and you know tell us who is Dr. Ravi Iyer. Hi, thank you. Um, hi everyone. My name is Ravi Iyer. And I'm a physician. I'm an Indian-born and trained and practicing American physician. I've been in the U.S. since 1988. I got all my basic physician's degree and my doctoral degree in molecular biology and immunology in India. I came to the U.S. in 1988 as a fellow at uh, Harvard Medical School, the School of Medicine, with a dual appointment at the MGH Cancer Center. And uh, I was working with one of the pioneers of American medicine. I was working with uh, uh, under the directorship of Kurt Isselbacher um, and uh, on, in his newly minted uh, cancer center in the lab of uh, Dr. Shiv Pillai. After I worked there for a few years, I moved to Children's Hospital in Dana-Farber, where I continued my work on how the genes um, of immunity are regulated. And um, Harvard, uh, at one point, uh, the idea was I would hang around and become a research assistant professor. So Harvard uh, sponsored me for my green card. I got my green card, and then I got a clinical award uh, in, in, as a young investigator, I came to D.C. to receive the award, uh, met the director of, uh, the, uh, of the Department of Medicine at uh, GW at that uh, ceremony and got to t- chatting, talking. He offered me a position at the GW, started training there, uh, and then moved on to uh, clinical medicine as a research, uh, where I I had the idea of doing community clinical medicine, but keeping my hands connected to research. And over the years, I've been successful in doing that. I I practice uh, regular community medicine, but I also do a lot of clinical research, clinical trials in my office, uh, and. Uh, uh, I held many roles. I've been a medical director of a hospice, been a director of the chairman of a community hospital for a few years. Uh, and uh, during the pandemic, uh, my clinic became one of the first and ultimately one of the busiest uh, community uh, testing and treatment centers for COVID. Uh, so a lot of today's where I am today at the D-Rate the Hate show is came out of my insights and my experiences during the pandemic, which affected all of us at a very visceral level. And I began to see that the issues that we were dealing with as a society were much, much bigger than just the virus. Just the virus, yeah. Yeah, so I decided to... Uh, spend the rest of my, I, I made a conscious decision that, um, you know, the balance of my uh, clinical medicine career, I'm going to continue being a physician, but I'm also going to devote a lot of time to advocacy in uh, in bridging the fractured uh, vision that we collectively have as a society, not just in the U.S., it's actually a global phenomenon. It's there in India, it's there in U.K., it's there in Europe. Uh, All over the world, there is a fractured vision of the human race. And uh, that fracture runs deep. It is rooted in certain very fundamental traits that we carry as humans, um, which has been blown out of proportion such that they now become uh, detrimental to our existence as a society. No, that's absolutely right. I, I mean, one of the biggest things that I've seen, uh, Ravi, in in the work that I've done, uh, not only, I mean, and and not just specific to COVID itself or the pandemic or the government's response to the pandemic, 
which I, you know, I think is is one of the greatest catastrophes uh, of of our lifetimes. But it's how fractured we are as as a human race. Polarization has become one of the greatest issues of our time, and I don't mean great as in good. I mean it, it is one of the most horrific things that I can imagine to look around me and see how polarized we have become and and, and covid's just part of that and I, and I think I think that exacerbated problems uh, with covid whether it be the covid response or or how people dealt with their neighbors during during the covid pandemic and uh, their neighbors their their workmates their uh, you know their, their doctors the institutional distrust that is uh, that has come about because of uh, of certain things that happened during the pandemic, it's one of the greatest, uh, biggest, and, and most devastating problems of our lifetime. And that's why when uh, when I find people that are actually trying to do the work, put in the work to uh, mend those chasms that we now find, mend those fractures that, that we we are now experiencing, uh, I like to have these conversations. So. So thank you so much again, Ravi, for joining me to talk about uh, what I really want to get into is is this book that I've 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 heard about. You call it the Reaper's Dance, uh, a thousand days of COVID, and it's you know well you know what let's let's just I'd rather have you tell me about it because I, I'm not going to try and explain it, <laughs> but I, I know you cite a lot of things. It's a nonfiction book with with real life stories. So, so what, what was your uh, original inspiration for this book? What was, what was the thought process behind starting this book for you, Ravi? See, I'm a physician. So my job is to empower people. Um, one of my mentors in GW was a guy by the name of Stanley Talpers. It's a very senior, old fashioned, old school, tall, patrician, a quintessential American physician, uh, very fair-haired, snow-white hair, and uh, hook nose and uh, inspiring personality. Okay. Uh, and he would tell me, he says, whenever I – so we used to have a, re a residence clinic, and he used to be the mentor for the clinic. So a bunch of residents would be working under him. I would – so when I used to see a patient and come back and I give my diagnosis and my treatment plan and so on and so forth at the outpatient clinic, he'll say, okay, you did all that, but what's the real problem? And then he would go on and he explained to us this way. He says, the real problem, Dr. Iyer, is how you'd start off. He says, the real problem, Dr. Iyer, is not your diagnosis or the disease that the patient is carrying. It is the unasked question that he has in his heart about how is he going to live life from this moment forward. And until and unless you have assured him that from this moment onwards, you have to do two things. You have to assure him that you understand the real problem. And you have to assure him that he is no longer alone in his fight and from this point onwards, you will be standing by him every inch of the way and enable him and empower him to address and live through the real problem, which is how is he going to live life from this moment onwards? Because the disease that you diagnose may or may not get cured. It may or may not get mitigated. But you, at all times, you have to ensure that you win the issue of the real problem. So when in COVID, the real problem was not the disease. The real problem was fear. Fear was the first contagion. Fear was the primary contagion. So we very early on, and that fear manifested in a thousand different ways. In some people, it manifested in whistle in the graveyard kind of bravado. Oh, I won't wear a mask. To hell with it. I'll do whatever. You can't do anything for me. My rights, my body, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And that's one kind of manifestation of fear. A, a kind of bravado that is not based on rational thinking, but a obstructionist or oppositional response. 
Then the other is, oh my God, I'm going to die in this next instant. I'm No one come near me. Hey, you don't come near me. You're not wearing a mask. Get out of my face. You know, you don't come into this building. Don't Or I'm going to not step out. I'm going to hide under a rock. That's the other one, which is the flee kind of. Uh, so I tell people that animals have four different responses to a threat. You have fight, Mm -hmm. you have Mm -hmm. flight, you have freeze, and you have faint. You know, opossums will faint, will will play dead. Right. Uh, All right. So in each case, these four atavistic responses, these four primitive responses was what society was showing in different forms, even among humans. Either they fought, but the problem is when you fight without knowledge, then you only thrash. You thrash like an animal in a trap. Because you don't have any vision or purpose or direction. You just lash out blindly. Acting on pure emotion. Yeah. So the problem is in a problem like COVID, in the pandemic, the people with knowledge, the scientists, the academics, the regulatory agencies, the political machinery, they completely um, abdicated their responsibility of effectively communicating in an empowering way to the public. They, They really did not know how to communicate the problem of a global pandemic such that it elicited a coherent response. Every person was, they were flipping and flopping back and forth on their recommendations. Or one person would say something and then there was another another agency would contradict that. On the same day, they would contradict. Uh, you would have the leader of the nation saying one thing and the other people saying one thing. Or the leader of the nation uh, saying something, but then the actions that they actually did were contradictory to their statements. So, I, so at so many levels the transmission of knowledge just disintegrated. So what happened then became, it became a free-for-all. In And in this vacuum of knowledge, you have this vast information engine called the internet, and you had so many other people jumping in with whatever piece of information that they had and posting it and getting their own gratification of their 15 minutes of fame on internet and then propounding it and so on and so forth. I'll give you an example where uh, um, the Princess Cruise Line, the -hmm. Princess Cruise Line uh, moored off uh, the port in Japan with 700 and odd positive patients. And uh, three of them would eventually die. And so all those 700 and odd people were quarantined uh, in Japan. And now Princess sent out a message to everyone saying that we are looking for uh, top of the line decontamination and uh, uh, sanitation services companies to submit bids. And they have to adhere by our guidelines, the CDC guidelines, the Japan Ministry of Health guidelines. And so they were formulating uh, decontamination policies based on gastrointestinal viruses because they did not have any knowledge of how long this virus actually stayed how was it transmitted they did not have knowledge of whether the virus would go off surfaces yes or no and then on surfaces how it was yeah 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 Yeah. so this is right we are talking about between march 10th to march 20th all right the first 10 days everyone was talking about and every person on the uh tv channels because they had to fill the airways with some substance were postulating but they would not, no one ever said that, hey, this is a supposition. They were presenting these facts as if it was established, tested fact. Right. And, and it was just all, yeah. Or it was all conjecture. It right. Was all conjecture. All conjecture. So, so, 
so it was best guesses and not a single authoritative person said this is my best guess it is likely to be this way maybe it is good to do it this way but it could be some no they wouldn't say that they say you know it will, we have some data that it, uh, they could swab the surface and they picked up rna they picked up rna did they pick up live virus they did not pick up live virus they did not pick up virus that was capable of infecting somebody they picked up residue of rna i have picked up rna from a covid survivor for 8 weeks he is completely negative as far as symptoms but i am still getting rna out of his nose sure sure so i mean that was an exception most of them would clear it by two, by 2 right, weeks right. but but that's what i'm trying to say is that just because your test picked up evidence of a virus that does not mean it was a viable virus but you now have a full policy of containment and saying that and then based on that they said okay everyone who came into contact go into quarantine for 2 weeks businesses closed down and so on and so forth in our practice we early on made a decision that we are going to stay open and we were not going to send anybody away but then all our colleagues and other people started yelling at us you are going to get us closed down because somebody sick is going to come in and they are going to that means all of us have to go into quarantine what the hell is it and we had a lot of uh, arguments back and forth to create a lot of friction right a lot of friction a lot of, i had to convince people that i knew what i was doing um and they were not willing to be convinced and then finally i said to help with you guys i'm going to do what i want to do you guys do, want to protect yourself fine protect yourself but that's it right right and then when we started testing and treating and being safe they started saying oh okay maybe we can also do then they, then my colleagues actually started off first by saying hey we have some of our patients can you test our patients then when i started seeing the, their patients and and testing their patients then they said okay um i would i have a patient who came in today and i would like to test him do you want to stand by me while i test him and you know just make sure i'm doing the right thing and you know in this way they got strength and got got courage in feeling confident that they could test so then my colleagues who were practicing in the same building with me slowly started testing and it started rippling out but that it was mid april before all of that happened the first one and a half months we were pretty much flying solo so this was this was april of of 2020 then it was march very, very april 2020 yeah yep so you started to build you started to provide an environment ravi where where people could uh you know uh, kind of combat that fear right uh, because and we the only way to do it was not by words we had to do it by example by example we had yeah. to show them that listen here is it look at us we are testing treating and not running away we are doing it and we are remaining safe we are we are, we are okay right uh, we we so there were no uh, all the ppes were expensive and they were not available Mm-hmm. so what we did was we bought uh, snow wind cheaters and snow pants mm-hmm. uh, oh sure yeah the windbreaker pants and things like that yeah, yeah. and uh, garden garden rubber garden hose uh, ga- garden shoes so instead of uh, pay, disposable booties we had a rubber made uh, uh, bin mm-hmm. and uh, we filled it with uh, dilute uh, swimming pool deter, um, uh, disinfectant sure sure so and we kept that outside our um, clinic and people uh, when we stepped out we would just step into it and then walk out when we step back in we step into it and walk back in <laughs> <laughs> interesting well i mean and, and that's but great. that's I what mean, you that's... do in swimming pools remember there's a little bath that you swear step into uh, eliminate sure, toenail sure. fungus before you well, get into swimming pool have you ever seen that yeah well you know and i laugh ravi but but it's one of those things where it it seems so simple but yet okay you know the, i mean this is it, it's and, it's and it's, cdc is giving all these complex uh, disinfection protocols and all we had was swimming pool detergent yeah well and <laughs> and that's and and that's fantastic so 
Okay, so so you're you're actually treating patients. You're and and one of the one of the big byproducts of, of the government's response to the pandemic was so many people, uh, you know, they 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 quit going to see their GP. Uh, they they quit getting their their you know their maintenance care for their other medical problems and and things like that. Just one of many byproducts that 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 came as the government's response uh, response to the pandemic. Uh, which was really bad, but, but you continued to treat these, you know, you continued to treat your patients. You continued to do what you had to do. You thought outside the box, you're looking root cause problem solving, which I absolutely love. And I'm certainly no doctor and, and I can Monday morning quarterback a lot of the things that happened, uh, you know, with the pandemic, but, but there were people, you know, in, in high positions that are are trying to figure things out. And, and and you're right. I mean, there's different things that, that each person is trying to deal with. And the messaging was very poor and 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 people are trying to make uh, make decisions based on ever evolving uh, information. But then there's others who are trying to claim, you know what, this is settled science. We, we've got this figured out. Talk to me about how. Well, I, I want to talk more about the book because I, I know we don't have a, a lot of time today. But but you talk about how I, I mean, this is a this is a real life story, real life examples uh, where you know how this affected not only the the public health and 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 what happened with you know the the public health establishment, which I, I talk a lot about that institutional distrust and and that's that's all within the project that I'm working. You know, with my friend Dr. Francis Collins at the Truth and Trust Project, uh, you know the the initiative through Braver Angels, but but from a a personal practicing physician, somebody who you know who's not out there making public health decisions, but you're actually making decisions with your personal patients, with people you had been treating already, and, and then and then and then how how you translated those stories into the reaper's dance so i'll give you three quick examples the public health policy is only its connection with the health of a of a society is only peripheral the real impact of public health is that it determines how everyone lives and conducts business. And so if you do not have a good, effective public health structure, you simply cannot exist as an individual or as a society. And let me explain to you a couple of things. When you started the policy of public in COVID, let's talk about the lockdown. Right now, we in this society, for various reasons, you have couples who are in failed marriages and the wife is in an abusive relationship with the husband or the children have an abusive father. But regardless, when that father goes out to work or when that wife goes out to work, for those eight hours, there is no abuse happening. They find some reprieve. Yes. During the lockdown, everyone got bottled into one small room in a pressure cooker without any reprieve. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. I had patients come in saying that they slipped and fell down the stairs and I would I would lift their uh, pant leg up and I would see bruise after bruise extending up their thigh. And then I would turn them around, flip their, sh- their, their jacket up and there are more bruises everywhere. Um, and this kind of victim being trapped with the abuser was a big problem during COVID. Globally, systemic abuse went up a thousandfold during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it was most intense in 2020 when the lockdowns were there, not just in the US, but all over the world. So the policy of a lockdown 
while it came at a very, very heavy cost. While, so you have now, you have children in a lockdown, in an abusive relationship, in a family, mm-hmm. deprived of education, in-person learning is gone. So the, the detrimental effect of this pandemic is going to resonate in our society for decades. Right, right. All right. That's just one example. Then let's talk about uh, human trafficking. This pandemic, for reasons that are still being figured out, tend to be uh, more mortal for adults rather than children. More adults died than children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what that meant is globally, more children lost one or both parents and became orphans. And these children got swept up by the human trafficking network, especially when they were children on families that were already at the poverty line, subsisting on either two incomes or maybe one precious income to keep them afloat. And when they lost that, so food insecurity, financial insecurity, physical insecurity, emotional insecurity, all I call these the four four horsemen. Mm-hmm. They were riding behind the fifth horseman of plague, which was the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All five horsemen were riding for these two and a half years. So that's the second example. The third example is the loneliness of the deaths that happened. See, in our society, somebody dies we are able to be by their bedside. We are holding their hand. We are able to say goodbyes in person. There, there is some, the level of closure was okay. Right now, during the pandemic, people were having to say goodbyes through a cell phone video. Yeah. And yeah. and in except for the US, in other societies, they were not allowed to even attend the funeral. The cremation was done away from them. The families were not allowed to go near the bodies. Yeah. The, so it was so these the trauma of the, the these kind of deaths is is huge. People carry this. So you can, you know, the right now we only measure the number of uh, Deaths from COVID, number of people who fell sick, number who have residual injury as long COVID or some other uh, sequelae of COVID. But this that's just a very, 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 very superficial accounting of COVID. So right. they we, didn't they didn't uh, the, there there's been no way to accurately uh, I, I guess quantify the the collateral damage. The collateral and, damage is huge. Yeah, and that's and, that's what, and, one thing I've talked about with, you know, with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. I've mentioned it in, in in many of my conversations with Dr. Francis Collins. The collateral damage that has come as a result of not just the pandemic, but the government's response to the world's response to the pandemic has been has been absolutely huge, and and it's something that is not has not been given enough at, at this point and i believe it finally it will and 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 i think more more each day people are, are realizing it but the collateral so, damage is absolutely huge so when i wrote the book i see there are a lot there are quite a few covid books out there now mm-hmm. uh, there um, and all the books they go into great depth into the science of covid the virus the way it goes all of that in my book, I, I touch upon the science of COVID, but I touch upon it only for the purpose of making it simplified for the layperson. What I wanted to write was, I wanted to write of the impact of COVID that was experienced at the ground level by the people of my people, the people, my patients. How did they get hit? And not just here, because I was I was remotely taking care of people Across the world, in India, there would be people who would WhatsApp me and consult with me about their loved ones and so on and so forth. And so uh, there was a huge 
it effect on the actual suffering population that i felt there was a need for that story to be told and mm-hmm. um, i'm going to touch upon this very quickly is this that there are four essential questions in my mind that still that need to be asked and have still not been effectively asked globally and by that i don't mean just the us all over the world we still are not having a transparent blame and shame free conversation about why did we have this pandemic all right what what i'm working on my friend <laughs> now every, everyone everyone get polarized into lab leak or zoonotic uh, spread from the wet market but guess what there were policy it does not matter where it came from there were policies against each the chinese government has a policy to not have wildlife being sold and butchered like this mhm mhm all right and yet you had a wet market where you had bats stacked upon pangolins stacked upon civets and raccoon dogs and bamboo rats and they were all peeing and pooping on each other through wire cages and they are being harvested slaughtered and consumed right there why every you don't need to go to a university to understand that that is not the way you do agriculture right and it is not like they didn't have money they, the, that industry is a million dollar industry they could have spent a few 100000 dollars to have a sanitary sanitary wet market mm-hmm. and in fact the the chinese government has a policy to do that but they didn't it was never implemented mm-hmm. and if you say it is a lab leak then the question is why did the us government the regulatory agencies the nih whatever it doesn't matter whatever the powers be decide to collaborate with a lab that is capable of doing pandemic quality research on dangerous viruses without having without us having serious meaningful enforcement and oversight capabilities over their lab mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that is why we are faced today with them saying no we can't show you our data and we have nothing to do except saying oh i'm so, so you know they are not showing it to us that transparent so, conversation is is needed because the, the the lack of transparency has probably led to more uh, of the uh stories and this is something that i've talked about with with jay baracharya is that lack of transparency that that lack of that suppression of of, of ideas the the lack of transparency that that is that the- It, yeah, it increases it, the mistrust it increases the 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 institutional distrust that we face and it helps to give and, those conspiracy it, theories the and it, it fractures society it right now that that really fractures society that's right so that's right so people people in positions of authority need to come forward and say listen hold it i am willing to put myself on the line and stand and be transparent with you and i can assure you that the american population will step up and say okay show me the way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, so that's that's the first thing why did it happen all right and and in that why is also how but you know those are the first two questions the second the third is why did we mess up our response It, the, we we globally nothing that we did that worked in the pandemic needed to be discovered new it was already known mhm mhm so why did we completely mess up our response that's the thing the f- the fourth and last question is how do we prevent it again because it's going to happen again mhm mhm so here's one thing that I, i i had this conversation tangentially with somebody else but i'll bring it up in more direct is we have two major global threats in our society today one is the nuclear threat which is a military threat because these are agents a, a nuclear weapon is an agent that is capable of mass destruction mm-hmm. similarly pandemic capable viruses are actually agents of mass destruction but in nuclear 
issue, we have an organizational structure, a global organizational structure and global enforcement and policing and enforcement capacity that we can go into a foreign country and say, hey, you are doing things that are putting the threat, uh, putting the rest of the world in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. We are going to stop you by doing X, Y, Z sanctions or whatever we are going to do. Or you have to sub or you have to submit to our regulatory commission, you have to submit to inspections and so on and so forth. Sure, sure. We have none of that in this. You the can problem. have, you can the have, problem. you can have a major nation like China or God forbid, North Korea, or you can have a major, you can have major nations deciding that I'm going to do something and I'm going to create something of, of, of mass destruction capacity and immunize my soldiers so that they are immune and voila. Uh, we, we find ourselves in some very interesting times, Ravi. And, and one of the big things that I've talked about so much with, with, with some of the people that I've been blessed enough to talk with, wh- whether they're people I agree with or not, I've had I've I've been afforded access to to some of the greatest minds on the planet when it comes to this. And one of the things that we always agree on or 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 one of the one of the greatest pieces of common ground that we find is the fact that because of what has happened we now find ourselves in a position where if we have this happen again you know, tomorrow, the next day, whatever, we will walk into the next pandemic in worse shape because of the institutional distrust. We will walk into the next pandemic in worse shape than we walked into this one. And and that is something that we've got to work through. That is something that we have to get together because we will not get through it by staying at each other's throats. We will not get through it by uh, uh, looking for a pound of flesh, I call you know I call it the pound of flesh strategy. Yeah. I don't think it. I don't think anybody uh, that that's listening probably doesn't understand what I'm talking about. There, uh, a pound of flesh strategy is not going to work. Finger pointing and and constant berating of those who we disagree with is not going to work. The the us versus them mentality, which I you know I'm I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to talk much about but we're at the end of our time but but the us versus them mentality is not going to get it done we have to come together we have to become transparent work through it find the truth together rebuild that what what has become one of the greatest uh, problems that are 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 we face as the human race this in- institutional distrust and it's not just in the united states it's all over the world if we do not work through that we will be in worse shape when the next pandemic comes, and we know that one will come. Whether yeah. whether it's man-made, whether whether it's engineered, as as you stated by some you know nefarious actor in some other country, or or, or even you know more terrifying somebody within our homeland. If it happens again, and it's not an if, it's a when. Maybe not in our lifetimes, but it will happen again. We have to be together we have to work together we have to be on the same page or we will be working to our own detriment yes the conversation begins from both sides at the grassroots level uh, organizations like you are doing uh, you know there's a guy by the name of jamie metzel and he created a organization called one shared world and uh, you can look it up um, the he says almost identical to what you are saying that this is necessary uh, that we have to find a way of actually looking at how are we going to live in a shared environment mm-hmm. uh, i uh, decided that i'm going to focus on on what i call diversity equity inclusion because dei is very similar to one shared world and braver angels in the sense that unless we see people think that one way to make everyone uh, join is to uh, make everyone feel that they are all the same you can't no 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 that does not the work. beauty the beauty the beauty of 
this world that we live in is because it requires diverse people to give it the full contours and shape and dynamism. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the key is not that we make become one, but the key is we become aligned while we are being unique. Yes. And the, the yep, the, with through our diversity and oh go ahead. I go oh, ahead. Yeah, e pluribus unum through from yeah. many one. Right. But the problem was in the um, United States, for example, had a vision that allowed for that unification. And that vision was articulated by leaders who provided a cohesive target for the diverse elements of society to work towards. That cohesive target is no longer cohesive. That's right. And and that articulation of that message is not. So it probably begins with trying to find leaders who will step up and give us that. And until then, there has to be individual community focused leaders who will give cohesive local messages for people to join and move. Uh, And and, um, to that extent, uh, you know, this conversations like Braver Angels, One Shared World, and so many others like this, uh, I see these more often, especially after having jumped into this whole advocacy uh, effort. I I'm actually reassured to some extent that there is a conversation going that I'm not just uh, a crazy lone voice around here. <laughs> <laughs> you are you are most certainly not a crazy lone voice, Ravi. Uh, I, I will tell you that once one starts to uh, believe in the idea of depolarization, one, once one starts to believe that we can mend the fabric that is that has been torn by by so many uh, issues these days. Once they start to realize that, you will start to see how, how many great people there are out there trying to do that kind of work. So, so whether it be the the organization that you speak of, One Shared World, or the organization that I do so much work with, uh, Braver Angels, people can get involved. And you know, Braver Angels is one of the greatest organizations I've had the opportunity to work with. They're the largest grassroots movement out there working towards depolarization. We we now have uh, the Braver Network where where organizations like and I know that you're going to check that out, Robbie. Braver Network, get your your local organization, whether it be a local organization or a local business or, or just, you know, or, or you just want to get involved. Uh, we got, you know, Braver, Braver Angels, uh, the community within Braver Angels and, and Braver Network and, and our latest campaign, the Rise for America campaign. So many great things can be done. So, so Ravi, we've only got about two minutes here left. Please do me a favor. Tell people where they can find the Reaper's Dance, where they can find more about you. And we will most certainly make sure that that is all in the show notes for this episode. You can reach me on, uh, I have a Linktree page. Actually, I, I'm going to get my own author website up. Uh, when it comes up, it will show up on my Linktree, but it is HTTPS. Uh, colon backslash backslash l i n k t r dot e e backslash d s and david r s and robert i y e r m d and that is my link tree. If you go there, you'll see all the links. Uh, if you uh, don't mind, I would like to read one little passage before we close, and then that would finish it. Please do. Please do. ICU day 15. The nurse steps in to check on the woman in the bed. She is barely visible, lying there somewhere beneath the tangled maze of ventilator and intravenous tubing. Above her, a fluorescent green blip dances its way across the screen of a monitor. Yellow numbers glow out readings of pulse, blood pressure, and oxygen saturation. The room is fist filled with the low hiss of a ventilator motor. On the window ledge, an iPhone plays a soft playlist through a small Bluetooth speaker. But the woman in ICU bed number five does not notice it. She is sedated, deep under a propofol-induced sleep, blissfully unconscious of the disease 
that is ravaging her body, that has ravaged her body. Now, only the chemical cocktail of the drugs dripping into her veins and the mechanical beat of the ventilator are forcing her life force into being a reluctant tenant in a body fast approaching the point of becoming a dwelling incompatible with life. I have been this woman's doctor for many years. She did everything right. She isolated, washed hands, covered her face, and stayed away from crowds. Her husband, daughter, and son all followed my guidance to a T. Pity that the rest of her friends did not. Too bad the neighbors on her street did not. Somewhere out there, someone had felt they had a greater right to their breath of maskless fresh air. So, this 48-year-old beautiful wife and mother will now have to give up her right to all her breaths. A 50-year-old man will have to watch the love of his life struggle to give up her ghost through a cell phone video and a teenage son and daughter will spend the rest of their lives without the breath of a mother fanning their cheeks. The Reaper's Dance. That is a... Uh... Yeah, we'll have the link to to this in the show notes. So thank you for sharing, Ravi. Thank you. Friends, if there's anything in this episode that provided exceptional value to you, please make sure to hit that share button. Share it with your friends, share it far and wide. And of course, if you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe right from our website so you can get the Derate the Hate podcast sent to your email inbox every week. So this is Wilk wrapping up for the week saying get out there, be kind to one another, be grateful for everything that you've got, and remember it's up to you to make each and every day the day that you want it to be. If there is something that you would like to share with me, you can catch me on most social media platforms or you can email me directly, wilk at wilksworld.com. With that, my friends, I am going to back on out of here and we will catch you next week. Take care.